Welcome to Old Flames. I'm your host, retired firefighter turned history professor and author Lee Hutch. Um, so I've been working on my episode that was supposed to be the next episode, the one about firefighting in Germany during World War II. But when you have 20 years worth of research about something and it's enough that you even wrote a book about it, it's kind of hard to condense that all into a, a 60 minute or so podcast episode so it's taken me i've started recording it but it's taken me longer than i anticipated to be able to do it so not wanting to go too long in between episodes because that's when people tend to kind of lose interest a little bit i uh, wanted to go ahead and get another episode out and so i thought i would do a, a story time episode where i told some stories uh both some firefighting stories and some stories about some of my orson cases but that's proved to be even more difficult than I had thought it would be. Um, I, I recorded a full episode where I told three firefighting stories, three arson stories, but I, you know, I'm incapable of making a long story short. So that recording was like two and a half hours long and that's way too long for a single podcast episode. Um, and I really didn't want it to be two different episodes where I'd have to break it up. But then the more I got to thinking about it, like I, as I was recording that stuff, I have to, um, and I mean, I'm sure y'all can understand this, but I have to change a lot of the identifying information, any identifying information in these stories. Um, and so that causes the story sometimes to lose part of what makes them funny to begin with. And then as far as the arson cases goes, these are cases that I worked. So I have the inside knowledge of the conduct of the investigation stuff that has never been disclosed before. I can't disclose that information, which then makes those stories seem kind of out there because the details of what was going on behind the scenes are part of what makes the story. So fun, those stories so funny. Um, so, you know, after thinking about it, I'm like, well, you know, I, I don't think I can publicly release those stories um, not without permission that I don't know that I can get. So, uh, what I've decided to do instead is I, I do have some stories that I can tell you. Um, so I'm going to start you off with a couple of them, uh, here. So today will be kind of a, a, uh, a mini story time episode. And as much as I wish I could go into all the detail about some of the other stories, it's just, you know, at this time I, I really can't do it, but uh, I'll still hit you up with some stories here. Okay, so this first story is one that um, well, I, I call it the the angel and the smoke eater. Um, it's something that actually I referenced this incident uh, very briefly in the previous episode when I was uh, talking with Captain Renz from the Milwaukee Fire Department. Um, if you haven't listened to that interview, go check it out and buy his book while you're at it, Beneath the Flames. Um, but before I get into the story, and this is one I actually have written about it, so I'm going to read you what I've, what I've written, but I have to give you a little bit of, you know, there's always the back, every story's got a backstory, you know, so I got to tell you a little backstory first. So 
I was uh, around 12 or 13 years old, and I was watching the news with my granddad one night because uh, we'd always sit down and watch the news together, um, which is funny. I was like far more up on current events when I was 12, 13 than I am now because I don't watch the news anymore. Uh, but anyway, we were watching the news, and uh, they came story on the – it was the national news, so it's like – you know, we had live at the, the local news live at five and then at five thirty we had the national news and then six was back to local news. So this was a national news. I can't remember if it was ABC or CBS. You usually watch one of those two. But anyway, um, so we're sitting there and they they uh, come in with a story about how uh, over in the Soviet Union, they have found or they had announced that they had located the grave of the uh, the Tsar of Russia and his family. You know, they no one had ever found their bodies since they were killed in, in 1918, but, you know, they're announcing that, hey, we know where this the burial pit is. Well, as it turned out, there were two bodies missing that wouldn't be found until 2007, but that's a whole other, whole other story. Um, and spoiler alert, I don't give a shit what the fucking musical or the movie says. Anastasia is dead. She died with her family. They found her body. They proved it by DNA. Sorry, you know. Um, and for the record, Americans don't pronounce it right. It is her name is not Anastasia, but it's whatever. So, oh, sorry, baby. Um, my, my cat Anastasia is looking at me because she heard me saying her name. Hey, little girl. Hey, baby. What are you doing? She's watching birds out the window. Um, anyway, so uh, as I'm watching the movie. As a movie, as I'm watching the news, they uh, they show pictures of uh, the czar and his wife, and then they show you know separate photos of each one of the the, the children. And when they showed a picture of Maria, who was the third daughter of the czar, um, and I, it's a photo that the the photo that they showed on the news that night is one I have framed hanging on my wall in the bedroom. Well, I mean, not the original photo. I mean, I printed a copy of it and framed it, but whatever. Um, something about that photo, I, I don't know what it was. Like, I still can't explain it to this day. Uh, seeing that photo, um, something like I, it, it, something like really drew me into the picture. It's very similar in a way. This has only happened to me one other time, and that's with the the photograph that inspired my uh forthcoming novel molly song which actually should be available for pre-order here within the next couple of weeks but uh anyway um something about her her photo uh, maria's photo I, I still can't explain it it's like looking at that picture it's like i knew everything about her but didn't know anything about her if that makes sense like it, it's hard to explain like i still i'm still at a loss to explain why it is but um I, uh, it was like she was, I don't know, it's like she was reaching through, you know, 80-some years of history and speaking directly to me. Um, but regardless, um, you know, after that, it, it kind of spurred my interest in uh, Russian history. So I started reading everything I could find on uh, Russian history, which at that time you know, it was still kind of difficult because there weren't a lot of, uh, you know, Russian archives still weren't open to U.S. researchers, you know, stuff like that. So it's kind of, wasn't a whole lot of stuff out there, but um, I read what I could. 
uh, would end up, um, you know, as an adult, uh, learning to speak Russian, which it's one of those weird things, but, um, I studied with a private tutor. Like I didn't, uh, take classes in school or anything. And, uh, the, the tutor I had was, a was from Russia. Um, she told me that she had never had all her years of teaching Americans to speak Russian. Uh, she had never had an American just instinctively pick up the language like I did. And she didn't believe me that I had no prior exposure to it. So it's just one of those weird kind of things. But anyway, um, so I guess, um, there was something about, as I said, something about, um, about Maria really kind of spoke to me, you know? And so it's like, I was always carrying her memory around with me, but regard, but anyway, so there is a legend sort of in the fire service that, um, if an individual firefighter or not civilians, this, this applies to y'all too, but, uh, if an individual is ever trapped in a fire and they call upon St. Florian, who is the patron saint of firefighters for protection, that he will appear and save you. Um, and there are people that, uh, firefighters and civilians alike who have said that that has happened to them. Um, well, my, my only issue with, with that is that like, okay, we only know the people that that worked for. What about the ones that that didn't work for? Uh, you know what I'm saying? So, um, but St. Florian himself is kind of a big part of the fire service. Uh, a, a large chunk of us wear, you know, St. Florian's medals when we're, when we're at work. Um, of course I'm Catholic. So for me wearing, you know, and having all the saint shit, that's, that's just part of my culture. But, you know, I worked, you know, being from the South where, um, you know, I was fortunate because I was in an area where we have a lot of Catholics, but um, there are, you know, parts of the South, like where I live now, where people hate Catholics. So, like the evangelicals can't stand us. They think we worship Satan and, and all this other stuff. Um, but even in the fire service, like I knew, you know, a good old boy, Southern Baptist rednecks that still wore St. Florian's medals when they were at work. You know, it's just, that's just what we do. Um so there always is that, you know, idea that something like that could happen in a fire and weird shit happens in fires anyway, stuff that we can't always explain. Um, I've had civilians tell me that, um, like in the heat of the moment, no pun intended that, you know, like right after that, it was, you know, a dead loved one appeared to them and then led them to safety, you know, things like that. It's stuff that we can't explain. Um, and I don't, you know, you, you can't explain it, you know, logically or rationally, and even religion doesn't necessarily explain it away either, but suffice it to say weird shit happens in fires. Right? So, um, <clears throat> this is, this is my story of, of what happened to, to me, uh, one afternoon, um, it's, uh, about 20 years ago, uh, not quite 20 years ago. So I'm, again, I'm going to read it and I have changed the names of my coworkers here to protect the guilty. I mean the innocent. So I was upstairs getting a cup of coffee when the run came in. Uh, my heartbeat accelerated when I heard three beeps over the loudspeaker, the signal for an incoming box alarm. There was a bit of static, and then the dispatcher read off the assignment. Battalion 1, engines 1, 3, 5, and 8, ladder 1 and 3, rescue 1, medic 5, respond on box 1342, heavy box assignment, fire in a commercial building, responding on TAC 2, timeout 1426. So I dumped my coffee in the sink and uh, set the cup down on the counter before making my way over to the pole 
uh, and, and sliding down the pole is like the greatest part of being a fireman, you know, and it's a fucking travesty that the safety Nazis with the NFPA say that poles are quote unquote dangerous, but you know, they can stick the pole up their ass. As I opened the, you know, the gate, you know, wrap my arms around it, the captain and uh, Griffin came out of the day room and they angled towards the other pole. Uh, the pole gave its customary squeak, you know, as I slid down to the ground floor. Uh, Patty, our EO on engine one, that means engineer operator, the, the guy that drives, already had the motor running as I kicked off my shoes, stepped into my boots, uh, reaching down, I grabbed the, um, my pants, pulled them up, shrugged my suspenders over my shoulders, and then climbed into the cab. Now, I kept my coat, uh, you know, I was a, a firefighter, not a company officer here, so I sat, you know, in the, the back of the cab. So I kept my coat on the rear-facing jump seat behind the driver, and that was my riding position. Um, and I kept the sleeves thread, uh, threaded through the, the straps on the air pack that was, you know, built into the seat. But um, So Patty gave a long burst on the air horn as we pull out of the station. I uh, put my hood on and then my coat. And since we were dispatched to what, as far as we knew, was a work in fire, um, I pulled my hood down off my head, like down to my shoulders, put my mask on, you know, tested the seal with my hand, and then pulled my hood back up over it, and then dropped my helmet on my head uh, with my right hand um, as I started to uh, tighten the straps on, on the air pack. Um, you know, made sure my helmet was at a at a, an appropriately jaunty angle, you know. I mean, just because you, uh, you know, are all wearing all this gear doesn't mean you can't look cool doing it. Dispatch said they're confirming stills. Uh, the captain yells over his shoulder to, to Griffin and I. And through his mask, you know, I could see Griffin, uh, Griffin grinning. And he, he flips me off and yells, fuck you, asshole. Uh, though his, you know, his voice is kind of muffled by the mask. And uh, the reason for that is earlier in the shift, um, he beat me at a game of Madden on the PlayStation. And our bet was that the winner got to take the, the nozzle at the next fire. So I, I, of course, I responded in kind. Uh, the box number was in our first due area, which meant that we would be the first due or the first engine to arrive. So we pull up right behind a battalion chief. And as we hop out of the rig, I hear the battalion chief uh, say, battalion one to fire alarm, transmit at 1075 on box 1342, show all companies working. Um, you know, it took a couple of deep breaths to kind of slow my, my pulse. As I opened a side compartment and got an ax and a halligan bar. Uh, Halligan bar is like, you know, six pounds of fuck shit up. Um, it's what we use for forcible entry. And obviously, you know, in this line of work, we know that fires are bad for, you know, victims, but we can't help but get excited by them because, you know, they don't, they don't come as often as they, they used to, you know, um, they don't happen as often as they used to. So the building was a squat blue square with boarded up windows and it had been a bar for a couple of decades but it closed a few years before when the owner got sent to prison for um, touching children inappropriately. And there's a, a thick carpet of smoke pushing down from the eaves of the roof, which told us that, yeah, I mean, that's something burning inside. And given the way that the, the fact that everything was shuttered, boarded up, whatever, it, it's going to be an oven in there. Like we knew that. Um, you might say, well, if it's a vacant building like that, why would you treat it? Um, why wouldn't you just like sit back and, and spray water on it from the outside? You know, we don't roll that way that hit it hard from the yard bullshit. We didn't, we didn't do that. You know, we were an aggressive interior department. We went in and put fires out. You know, the, when the way you put a fire out is you advance to the seat of the fire and you spray fucking water on it. Um, 
the whole thing about, oh, we'll stand in the yard outside the building and spray it from the out. That's, that's Bush League shit. We didn't do that. Um, so, uh, as a, you know, the captain has a brief word, you know, with the battalion chief, uh, Griffin shoulders the attack line and stretches it towards the door, uh, moving in kind of a zigzag pattern to flake the hose out. And I'm following along behind him, you know, kind of helping flake out the hose. Uh, we get to the, we get to the door, uh, captain joins us at the door. Um, Griffin, uh, sets the hose on the ground and takes the Halligan bar from me, uh, placing it with the prongs, you know, over the lock and the crease of the door. I tap it with a butt of the ax a few times till the lock gives way with a crunch. Um, you know, it didn't take much, but we pull the door open and, um, you know, we've, we felt the heat like to slap us in the face. Um, as soon as the door was open. So we, uh, we plug our mask, um, into the, into the tank, into our tanks. Uh, the captain signals Patty to charge the line by raising his, his right arm and waving it in a circular motion. And, you know, the, the hose kind of jumps to life as, you know, water shoots through it. Uh, Griffin bleeds some out, you know, the nozzle. And then the captain, you know, yells, you know, okay, you bastards, let's go, let's go put it out. So, uh, we advance into the darkness of this building. Now Griffin's on the nozzle. The captain's directly behind him with his with his hand on the top of Griffin's air pack. Um, I'm actually several feet back on the hose. I'm third man on the hose, so it's actually my job to feed him slack as we go into the building. Um, you know, charge fire hoses is a hell of a lot heavier than you think. So it's like every few feet, I'd have to stop and kind of turn around and, and heave with the, the uh, hose line into the building, you know, uh, I don't know how much time passed or how far I got into the building. And, you know, some of the stuff and situations like this, you, you can remember some stuff very, very clearly, but can't remember other stuff at all. And it's definitely one of those things. Um, but I, I do remember it was, it was hotter than hell in there and somehow I'm not sure I'm still, I still don't know how, but I, I lost connection with the hose. I lost my contact with the hose. But, I mean, it's no big deal. You know, I mean, it's happened before. So, I, I feel around with my hand trying to find it, but I can't find it. I mean, it's nothing but floor, you know. Okay, well, that's not that's not good, but it's there somewhere. You know, so I start, I crawl in a circle, thinking, that, well, if I crawl in a circle, I'll eventually intersect the hose and I'll find my place. So, as I'm crawling in a circle, I'm sweeping my arms back and forth on the floor, not finding anything, you know, I'm yelling for the guys, but they can't hear me because a, we're wearing air packs and B fires are kind of noisy. Uh, and this happened back, back in the day, you know, before firefighters, we didn't like the only person with the radio was the EO who was out at the engine running the pumps and the captain. Um, it wasn't like every firefighter had a radio. And at this time we were not even issued with pass devices. So it's like you, you really were on your own. Um, so, and it, keep in mind in my head, I'm crawling in a circle, but you can't see shit. I mean, there, there's no visibility. So it's like, you don't really know that you're crawling in a, in a circle because the smoke had banked down so low. Uh, you really just had a little bit of, of, uh, of, uh, visibility right on the, the surface of the floor, but that's about it. You know, so that's not enough to tell if you're really crawling in a circle. I just thought I was. Um, it, it's very similar, you know, being in a fire with, you know, visibility like this, it's very similar to, um, you know, scuba divers can get turned around 
uh, when they're diving in like zero visibility water um, to where they don't know which way is up, which way is down, which way is left, which way is right. It's the same way here. I mean, it's very, very similar. Um, so I decide, okay, the circle's not working. I can't find the hose. No big deal. <clears throat> I'm going to straighten out. I'm going to crawl in a straight line and I'll hit a wall. <clears throat> when I hit a wall, I'll make a turn and um, that'll, uh, I'll, I'll make a turn. And in my head, I'm like, I need to go left because that'll get me back to the back to the door. So no big deal. Well, I, I start crawling in a line and there's a, all sorts of shit. You know, there's like tables and chairs and crap all piled up into the floor. I'm, I'm, I'm bumping into shit. My air pack's getting caught. You know, my tank's getting caught. Um, there's, as I said, there's no visibility. Um, my, my breathing starts to speed up. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not too, uh, not too macho to say macho here to say that yeah I was starting to get scared, you know my my breathing speeds up which is causing my tank to run down faster, you know so there I am on my hands and knees you know staring down at the floor and like I knew I was dead at that point like I um and at the point that I realized I was dead that I was gonna die like there was nothing that could be you know that that it was game over I was very calm like at that point all the fear vanished like nothing. Um, it's very almost kind of peaceful, but like my mind's projecting this image of a big department funeral with, you know, bagpipes and hundreds of uniformed firefighters. And, you know, to make it worse, my mask starts um, buzzing with low air alert, you know, so it's like I have like three minutes to get out of here. But how, you know, um, I didn't know which way to go. Nothing. So, you know, me being a good Irish Catholic boy, it's like reflexively, I just I start to recite, you know, Hail Mary. Um I can't remember if it was in my head or out loud. And that's when it happened. So what I'm about to tell you is true. Uh, and not only is it true, but it was witnessed by one other person. So it's not, uh, well, part of it was witnessed by one other person. So it ain't just me having too much to drink or anything. So, um, so I felt, um, I felt hands, uh, cupping my chin through my mask and I thought oh thank god you know they they found me you know um these hands lifted my my head up because I was staring like straight down I was on my hands and knees looking down at the floor but they lift my head up and I find myself looking into the uh big bright blue eyes of Maria Nikolaevna um, she was bending down with her face level with mine. And there was a, I don't know what, like a, like an aura around her. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. It, it, it's still, it's kind of hard for me to, me to explain, but, um, she says, um, don't be afraid. Uh, I will protect you. And you might wonder, well, okay, well, why is she Russian? So why the hell is she speaking English to you? Her whole family spoke English. As a matter of fact, her parents usually communicated with each other in English. And she and her sisters spoke to each other in a mix of Russian and English. So, I mean, she spoke English. I guess she knew I spoke English too. I don't know. So, I like, I, I stared kind of... My my first thought was, I'm I'm dead. And she's come to take me to... 
wherever it is that dead people go. Like that was my, my, my first thought. Um, like I didn't, yeah, yeah, I just, I, I thought I was dead because up to that point I was, I had become certain I was going to die. And then now this happens. So it's like, okay, uh, you know, it, she's come to, you know, instead of getting the Valkyries coming to carry me away to Valhalla, since I'm not German, you know, I, I get her instead. Um, she, she like straightens up and takes a step back and she, she reaches down with her hand and she says, take my hand. And I'm like, well, shit, uh, I don't have any other options, you know? So I, uh, I reach up with my hand and she takes hold of it and she had a pretty impressive grip. I distinctly remember that. And she pulls me to my feet. Well, here's the thing. Keep in mind, I'm inside a building filled with smoke, heat, fire gases, by standing up, because also because I'm, you know, six foot four, by standing up, I should have gotten, I, that that was exposing me to the superheated air, which should have caused my mouth, my mask to fail, which then caused me to get, because, you know, mask can't endure, your your mask itself can't, that's the weak spot in your bunker gear. So, um, you know, I should have gotten a lung full of superheated air and died, but not only did that not happen, but all of a sudden there was no heat sensation because I, we were baking, I was baking in there and all of a sudden the heat sensation's gone even. So, um, she says, come with me and she turns and like leads me into the, into the smoke. But I could, like, I couldn't see anything but her if that makes sense, like I could see her because she had this aura around her, but everything else was black. Um, we walk, it wasn't very far, maybe just a few feet. And she pauses, uh, and, um, I cause I'm behind her. I can't see what she does, but exactly. But, um, long story short, she, she pushes open a door and I could see sunlight outside and engine five, which was one of the, the, uh, second end companies, they had parked on that side of the building. Um, she let go of my hand and she, she steps aside kind of like out of the doorway and she puts her right hand on my air pack and gives me like a slight push towards the, the light. And right as I reach the door, uh, the, the, the door frame, you know, she reaches up and uh grabs my shoulder and um like stops me you know and and she stands on her she, she's about five seven so she stands on her toes and whispers in my ear and i can still i can still hear her voice you know I'm almost 20 years later i can hear it plain as day she said uh, i will watch over you always so i take a few steps outside the door uh, my mask or my tank runs dry so it's like i rip my helmet off rip my mask off um, up ahead of me i see jack who is the eo on engine five and he's looking at me with this weird like look on his face you know weird like almost like a puzzled expression on his face and i was so shaken up by what had happened that okay i gotten separated from the hose line in the meantime, inside, uh, Griffin and uh, the captain were looking for me. 
you know, um, but I was so shaken. You know, my first, the first thing I should have done was made a beeline straight for the battalion chief to say, Hey, I'm out. I got out. So he could let them know that I was, I was out, but I was so shaken up that like, I wasn't even thinking like of my job at this point, you know? So I, um, the first thing I did was I, I walked over to, to, uh, Jack and ask him for a cigarette. And, um, he, uh, he, he hands me one with a lighter and my hands are shaking so bad. I couldn't even light it. So he had to light it for me. And, um, right as I inhaled, he, he looks at me and says, can I ask you something, Hutch? And I said, yeah. And he said, who is that lady in the doorway with you? And he said, I, I know that wasn't a civilian in the building. It looked cause I mean, she was wearing white. I mean, she, she, and he kind of paused and he said, that was some kind of angel, wasn't it? And I said, yeah, you know, and, uh, he said, well, do you know, he said something like, would you know which, which angel it was or something like that? And I'm like, dude, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe me if I told you, you know? And he, um, he just kind of shrugs and says, uh, he said, that's you know, like your, your, your secret safe with me kind of thing. Um, you know, but he, he saw it too. Um, or he saw her too. So, um, as I said, this, this stuff happens in fires sometimes. Um, it's one of those things that it's, it's whispered about around fire stations, but it's not something that we necessarily, um, ever talk openly about. Uh, but you know, I'm not, I'm not too, uh, I'm not too proud that I don't want to share this, that I, that I would hide the fact that, that, yeah, I made it out of a fire and it, and you know, it wasn't of, of my own because of my own wits and determination, you know, I had to have some otherworldly help here. Um, but I will say this too. Now, once the fire was out, uh, we went back in there, you know, when I was back in the building after the fire was out, the door that she led me to, um, there was no way, absolutely no way that I would have found that door on my own because, uh, there was no knob on the inside of the door. Like I said, this, this bar was kind of like code violation city, but there was no knob on the inside of the door. There was, there was just a lock. Um, and, uh, like the, there was a, a, a knob on the outside of the door, but not on the inside. Um, and when we looked at the door, because, you know, it was open, you know, obviously it stayed open. The deadbolt on that door was out, like it had, like, extended out, like it had been locked and it wasn't broken. So, um, and, you know, I certainly didn't have the key, you know, so I don't, I said, I, it's, it's just one of those, I can't, I can't explain it. Other people may try to find a logical explanation for how that happened. I was there, I know what happened, and there's no way I got out that door on my own. That That's just, that's all there is to it. I mean, it's just, there's not. Um, that's, it is what it is. Uh, now, 
um, you know, in the, the years that have gone by, you know, since then, um, uh, Maria and her sisters are, uh, Russian Orthodox saints. Uh, they're, they were canonized as, um, passion bearers by the Russian Orthodox church, which, you know, formally makes them saints. Uh, cause the Russian Orthodox, they're like, they're the way the Orthodox church, they like categorize saints a little differently than the Catholic church does. But regardless, they, they are officially saints. Um, but that whole incident, uh, led me uh, later. I mean, it still took some time, uh, but later I, um, uh, switched team switched teams if you will and uh went from being catholic to um being russian orthodox um i have a shrine to her in my room with icons of her and everything um that's not the that wasn't the last time that um that she appeared to me in some form but the the other time it happened that's something that i i still can't uh, some I still can't talk about, um, just, it doesn't, I can't, um, that whole incident, this, this other incident is just, it's, it's too raw. I can't, it's not something I can, I, I could, I could talk about. Um, but you know, anytime, uh, anytime, um, that I'm in a difficult spot or I'm facing a difficult decision, you know, it's, I know that she's watching over me. She's kind of become my guardian angel in a way. Uh, I pray in front of her icon every night. Um, it's the last thing I do before I get in bed. First thing I do when I get out of bed, you know, just, it, it is what it is. Um, you can call it a, call it an ob obsession if you like, but you know, I guess everybody, everybody has one, you know, this just happens to be mine. All right. So I'm going to shift focus into the next story now. And this next story this one's going to be a funny story. Um, it, let's just say that the, the title of this next story is called Blondes, Bondage, and Batman. I'm going to start this story with a with a PSA. You know, now I don't I don't know what it is about the general public, but the general public is fascinated with the macabre. You know, I mean, look at how excited white women get every time there's a new serial killer show on on discovery id channel you know and people love hearing stories about you know blood and guts and murders and and this that and the other well because of that um it, it's actually very very common for people to do this um a, a civilian upon meeting uh, a person who is a firefighter a police officer paramedic maybe an uh, er nurse or something like that you know, especially if this individual has never met someone from that line of work before, they always ask the same damn question. You know, they'll like, uh, they'll ask you what you do for a living or what you did for a living. And you say, like in my case, well, I'm a retired fireman, you know, and it's like, I can see it coming. Like I can, it's like slow motion. No. And they ask, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? Never, ever ask someone that question think of it this way if you hit were meeting just a, a regular person not somebody from from public safety for the first time you would never ask them right after you say your name tell me the worst thing that's ever happened to you so why the fuck do you think it's acceptable to ask 
someone in public safety that question. Like that is, it boggles my mind. Um, we, we live with that shit day in and day out. It, it, it's stuck in our heads. It, it will never leave. I got 15 years worth of shit that plays on an endless loop in my head every night when I close my eyes and try to go to sleep. All right. Um, and, and all of us that have worked in those fields have those calls that we just cannot forget about them, no matter how hard we try. Asking that question causes us mentally to relive that call. That's why you should never do that. Um, I have a stock answer that I give. Usually when somebody asks me that question, my response is, look, that's in my head. You really don't want it in yours. And more often than not, the person apologizes and I'm like, look, it's, it's not your fault. I mean, you didn't know better, but you know, try not to ask people that in the future. It just, I treat it as a teachable moment, you know, but, um, there are times uh, where, you know, I, I had a, I mean, I, I remember it happened to me once, um, at the college where I teach now, uh, a new professor, like, Hey, aren't you the one that's the retired fireman? I said, yeah. And then I knew he, I mean, it's like, and, and he, he, and I wasn't, it was one of those times where I was tired. I was in a lot of pain. So my mental defenses weren't up and him simply asking that question caused me to have about a month of a bad, um, PTSD spell, you know? So that's what asking that question can do. Um, but there was this, there was another time when I decided to take a different tactic and this was at the college I taught at before the one I'm at now. Um, and the funny thing is the person that asked it was a psychology professor who should have known better, but he asked, and and this is somebody I didn't know. Like I just met the guy, you know, and, uh, and I, I gave him my stock answer, but he's like, no, no, it's okay. You can tell me I can handle it. And I was like, no, look, I really don't want to talk about it. He's like, no, no, it's okay. You can tell me. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I start telling him Well, about midway through my story, dude's starting to turn green and he gets up to leave. I'm like, no, sit your ass back down. You asked for the story. You're going to hear it. Asshole. Sit down. Let me finish. And I finished the story and he threw up in a trash can. So I think he learned his lesson. He'll never ask anybody that story again, uh, or that, that question again. So instead of asking that question, ask this one, ask what's the craziest thing you've ever seen? Because we all have, we, we also have these calls that, you know, 20 years later, we're still laughing about them. These are the kind of stories we tell around the, the firehouse table, you know, and if you were to ask me, what is the craziest thing you've ever seen? The story you would get is the one that I'm about to tell. So this happened when I was a, a lieutenant. Um, and I, for a, a period of time, I had actually transferred off an engine company. Uh, I was on a ladder company and, um, it, it was a, it was a punitive reassignment that was not a punitive reassignment, meaning they denied it was because of that. It was just an administrative transfer. So, um, I had gone from, you know, being a, working my way up from firefighter to Lieutenant in a, um, a area that people might uncharitably refer to as a ghetto. Uh, but you know, it's, I, I grew up, there, I had a, a, a helmet sticker on my helmet that said, God bless the ghetto. You know, that, those were my people. And I love working there, working out of that station. Um, well, the company, I, the latter company that I was 
reassigned to for a few months was in a um, it was a much slower out of a much slower station um, that protected a more more middle middle class upper middle class community uh, or neighborhood where you know the people had a had a much lighter skin hue than where I was used to working and you know even though yeah I'm white myself I didn't grow up in that environment I didn't grow up around those people those kind of people so like my honky ass I mean I had no idea how to relate or interact with middle class or upper middle class white people because I never I like that's not where I grew up actually where I grew up I'd interacted with very few white people outside of my family anyway because you know the neighborhood I grew up in you know that area was about 99 percent black uh so you know I wasn't I wasn't used to this new environment that I found myself dropped in and it's kind of funny because you know as much as the those individuals these middle class or, or upper middle class people are all like oh we love the fire department that's a bunch of fucking bullshit because these motherfuckers, they're the first people to complain when it takes you more than 30 seconds to get to their call when they call 911. But those same assholes and their beamers are the ones not yielding the right of way when you're running with your lights and sirens on because what they have to do is far more important than what you're going to do. You know, um, so I, <laughs> I racked up a few complaints uh, from public complaints when I was at this other station. And the funny thing is I never, I interacted with people the same exact way there that I had back in my hood, but you know, they're going to do nothing but complain. I remember one time a lady called 911 because she says, she says she smells smoke in her house. Well, we dispatched that as a full box alarm because if one engine shows up and that's all you send, but the fucking house is on fire, then you're going to have a problem. So we go ahead and dispatch a full box, far better to put companies back in service than to start them late. So as it turns out, it was nothing. I mean, AC motor burned up. That's all it was. It was no fire. But, you know, I remember she got real snotty with me in the front yard and says, well, you didn't have to send the whole department. You know, we send, you know, I think it was three engines and a ladder. Um, so I just looked at her and said, man, we got a lot more companies than this. Your call wasn't important enough for the whole department. And, of course, she called and complained. Um, so, you know, this was, like I said, this was a new... I mean, I may as well have been working on the far side of the moon, even though it was just a few miles away from, you know, where I, where the station I had been at. Uh, so I went from running, you know, 12, 13 calls every 24 hours to a ladder company that ran four, you know, um, it's like you sit at the station and watch the freaking paint dry, you know, but, uh, anyway, so we got, it was around lunchtime. Uh, we had gone to the grocery store, um, to pick up groceries for lunch or make our lunch and supper. And, uh, we were done. We loaded up the groceries in the, in the truck and we're, you know, pulling out of the parking lot and, uh, fire alarm comes on the radio, uh, calls uh, ladder two. So I answer and they say, switch to med one for an EMS run. So I'm like, sorry, we're, we're gonna have a little detour on the way back to the station. You know, a good thing we didn't have any perishable items with us. So, you know, I switched my, my attack channel over and they dispatch us to an unknown medical call at a residence. And, um, they didn't have any information other than, cause I asked, you know, after they dispatched, Hey, do you have any further information on that? Cause otherwise, I mean, just unknown EMS run. So, uh, they said that the call came in from third party, came in from the neighbor 
she said that the occupant of the house next door to hers, uh, she could hear her inside saying that she was stuck and yelling for help. So that was like the, the whole, that's all the information they had. So I went ahead and asked that, uh, that they send a, uh, go ahead and start a patrol unit that way too, just because, you know, not knowing exactly what we were going into, uh, you know, where I worked, the, the police department and fire department, we did our own things. Like we had different dispatches. Our fire department dispatch was separate from police dispatch. They weren't even in the same building. Um, you know, calls would be route. Like when you called 911, a person would ask, you know, police fire ambulance and then route you to one or the other, you know, um, the police didn't respond to our, our calls to fire department calls, unless it was the kind of call that they would be at anyway, like a car accident, a shooting, a stabbing, you know, whatever. And also, um, as anyone that has worked in public safety will tell you the call that you're dispatched to is often quite different than the call that you find uh, when you get there. I mean, I remember we ran a chest pains call one time, a person having chest pains. When we get there, yeah, the person's having chest pains. It's because they've been shot in the chest. You know, so I figure far better go ahead and have a patrol unit come out just just in case, you know, it's something um, something that we need their help with. So we get there. Um, it's a nice, you know, real middle-class neighborhood where, like, you know, one of those track housing neighborhoods where, uh, where with that new construction where, like, every, there's only four uh, there's only four floor plans for the whole freaking neighborhood. So like every fourth house is the same, you know, that kind of thing. So we pull up and, um, the two cars in the driveway of this, of the call of the house we were dispatched to, but there's a neighbor, uh, she's standing in her driveway next door. Um, so I tell my guys and we pull up, I tell my guys, I'm like, Hey, y'all uh, sit tight here for a second. Let me go talk to the neighbor, see what's going on. So I go over and say, are you the caller? She says, yeah. And I said, well, what's, what's going on? She says, well, I was around on the side of my house, uh, tending my rose bushes. And she said earlier today, uh, she said it was really just like maybe 20 minutes ago. Uh, she said it's a, it's a husband and wife, uh, kind of a younger couple uh, that live next door. The wife was at home, but she said it was around lunchtime. And so the husband comes home, I guess she said, I guess for lunch. Cause he, you know, it's a work day. And she said, so I was around on the corner of the house or the side of the house trimming my rose bushes. And I heard the, the lady that lives there. Um, I could hear her through the bedroom window, which is on that side of the house. I could hear her yelling for help. So I went over to the window and asked her what was going on. And she said that she was stuck and she needed help. Um, and asked me to call, uh, call 911. So I said, okay, let me take me over to that side of the house. You know, so she did. So I went up to the window and like, you couldn't see through the window. Cause I mean, it was like curtains are closed on it, but I, but I like was able to yell and she heard me, you know, I identified myself and she said she was just, um, uh, stuck and, and, um, and needed help. And, uh, you know, she wasn't in, like, there was no burglar in the house or anything like that. So I asked her, Hey, do you have a, do you have a spare key somewhere? Cause Otherwise, we're going to have to force the door. And she said, no, you know, she didn't. And I said, okay, well, we're going to have to, we're going to have to pop the door, the front door to get in. And she said that was okay. They didn't have any pets or anything like that. So, um, we get the ax and Halligan bar off the truck and, um, you know, ambulance is pulling up by this point, you know, so we, we pop the, the lock on the door. I go in first 
and you know identify myself again you know and i've you know, yells, uh, you know, Lieutenant Hutch Fire Department, you know, where are you? <clears throat> and she says, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in here. So <clears throat> when you walk in, it's like a foyer opened up, you know, to in front of you, you had like the living room and then the kitchen to the right, to the left, there was a hallway and the hallway dead ended into a door. And that's where her voice was coming from. <clears throat> so I said, okay. So I start down the hallway. Yeah. You know, I got my guys with me and, uh, one police officer with me. Um, so walk up and I, I open the door and I, I, I will say as I'm reaching my hand for the doorknob part of me is dreading what I'm going to find when I open it even though from the sound of her voice she wasn't in any like serious distress or anything so I open the door and there's a bed like where the foot of the bed is facing me you know when I open the door um, with the headboard of the bed directly under the window it was off-centered from the center of the room. So to the left of the bed, there was a nightstand to the right of the bed. But to the left of the bed, there was only maybe 18 inches of space between the side of the bed and the wall. On the bed, there is a young woman, butt naked, spread eagle, and handcuffed to the bed. It's like, okay, well, she's stuck. Obviously, she's stuck. So me maintaining my calm, professional demeanor. I say, ma'am, we'll have you free here in just a second. Um, I turn to one of my guys and I'm like, hey, go dig around. Find her a, a, a bathrobe or a towel or a, a sheet or blanket or something that she can cover up with, you know. Uh, so he, he leaves. Um, and I look at the police officer. I'm like, hey, your keys can unlock this stuff. And he's like, yeah. Well, in the meantime, the young lady on the bed, say young lady, I mean, we're say mid to late twenties says, no, no, it's fine. The keys on the nightstand next to the bed. She goes, I'm okay. He needs help. And I'm looking around and I'm like, ma'am, uh, I don't see anybody else in the room. And I, at that point I noticed, cause I'm, you know, I'm trying not to look. So I mean, otherwise you think, well, how can you miss that? There was a low-hanging ceiling fan over the bed. In between her legs, about the level of the knees, there was some drops of blood. And uh, But she had no injuries. So I, she, she starts saying, he's over there, and of course she can't move. So she's using her head to like point to that gap between the bed and the wall. So I walk over and, and look down there there there's a guy wedged into this space bleeding from a kind of a gash to the head uh, like to his forehead apparently unconscious dressed in a Batman costume and when I say Batman costume, we're talking like fucking cape and everything. I mean, it was like a, it, it was a, it was a pretty high quality Batman costume. I will say. So apparently from what we gathered, um, he came home. This was the husband. He came home from lunch. They were going to have a nooner. You know, he attaches her to the bed, goes into the bathroom, changes into the Batman costume, comes back into the room kind of fluffs his cape, goes to dive onto the bed, but a low-hanging ceiling fan, head hits the ceiling fan, 
it like deflects him to the side and he ends up wedged in that space. You know, so it's like, okay, well, this one's going to be kind of tricky to get him out of there because you have to worry about in that kind of situation. Um, you know, of course, you have the potential head injury, you have the bleeding that you need to control, and uh, you also can't eliminate the, the risk of a, uh, or you can't rule out a possible spinal injury. So I'm thinking, okay, how are we going to get this guy out of here? In the meantime, the police officer, you know, disengages the, the young lady. So we, we slide a backboard down in between him and the bed, move the bed out and kind of roll him onto the backboard. Um, I have to actually had to lay down on top of the bed to be able to reach down there. Cause I kind of got long arms. Yeah. I'm uh, six, four. So I was able to lean down and fit a C collar on him real quick. And then we, we pull him, we using the, using the, uh, the backboard, we lift him up, get him out of that space. And of course we set him back down on the ground, uh, so we can do a full assessment, you know? Um, so I'm kneeling down next to him, uh, palpating for any broken bones, anything like that. Um, the paramedics are working on getting his, uh, his forehead, getting the bleeding controlled on his forehead. You know, so I'm kneeling down there and I feel a, like a presence, you know, beside me. And the, the young lady asks, is he going to be okay? And I, you know, I'm kneeling down. Remember I turn to my right to, towards the direction of the voice and she's standing right there at my shoulder. So just think about what I'm eye level with here. She's still naked. So I, I, I yell at one of my guys. I'm like, hey, I told you to go get her a blanket. And she just looks down at me and it's like, oh, it's okay. I'm fine. And I'm like, well, yes, but that's not the issue here. You know, it's like she's like not the slightest bit embarrassed. And here she is still standing there butt naked in a room full of cops and firemen. I tell you how firemen are like we, we get people pregnant just by looking at them. You know, like, like go put some clothes on lady, please. You know, uh, and I'm like, look, he's, he, and he was starting to come around. He was community, he was communicating with us and everything. I'm like, well, you know, it, it doesn't look like he may have a slight concussion. He'll need some stitches on his forehead. He's got no broken bones. He's barring any weird complications they find in the ER. He should be okay. You know? Um, so we, um, they, they one of the paramedics goes out, gets a stretcher. We, plop him on the stretcher and uh, they take him off. She relents and finally puts on a bathrobe. Uh, the police officer gives her some uh, names of some locksmiths that can come and take care of the door, you know, for, you know, um, and uh, they were getting ready to leave and got all the information I needed for our report. And, um, you know, when I walk out the front door, I swear to God, there was like 20 cops in the front yard. Um, like if you, this is a life hack. If any of you go into law enforcement, um, if, if you're ever on a scene and you're getting shot at, don't get on the radio and say you're getting shot at, get on the radio and say that there's a naked lady wandering down the street. Cause if you do that, you'll get every cop coming from a hundred mile radius, you know, and that's kind of, I guess what, I don't know what the police officer said over the radio. Cause we didn't monitor their radio channels, but so I did you know, but he must have said something. I don't know if they got a fucking code word or what, but, um, so, you know, it's one of those things where we kind of laughed about it on the way back to the station. We're like, damn, they're not even going to believe us when you get back and tell them this, um, talk about, you know, it's a station. Well, uh, the story has kind of a, kind of a, 
I'm going to say it's a funny conclusion, but to me it's kind of a creepy conclusion. So about six months later, I'm in a grocery store. I'm off duty, you know, I'm, uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, plain clothes. I'm pushing my basket, you know, down the cereal aisle. And I hear a voice that says, hey, aren't you with the fire department? And I turn around and there's this young lady standing there. I did not recognize her. Um, I had no idea who this person was. And, uh, and I said, yes, ma'am, you know, I am. And she said, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, ma'am, I, I don't, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a good Southern boy. I got manners. So I'm like, ma'am, I don't, I, I don't mean any offense. It's just, we, we go into so many people's houses, you know, it's hard to remember everybody that we come in contact with, you know? And she said, oh, I figure for sure you'd remember me. And I said, why, why is that? She steps uncomfortably close to me because I don't like people getting close to me. She steps uncomfortably, uncomfortably close, puts her hand on my arm and says, you know, the Batman thing. And I said, oh, ma'am, I'm sorry. I, again, I, I, I didn't I didn't recognize you. And I had to stop myself because normally like I don't have a filter. So whatever I think in my head comes out my mouth for whatever reason, I, I feel I had a filter that day because what I was thinking was I didn't recognize you with your clothes on. Well, thankfully, I didn't say that. I just said, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize you. And uh, and I said, well, how how is your I said, that was your husband, right? I mean, how's he doing? She's like, oh, he's fine. You know, he got some stitches, but he's fine. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to hear he wasn't, you know, seriously hurt, you know. Me trying to be good public servant, you know. And um, she said, do you mind if I ask you something? And I said, yeah, sure, you know. Um, I thought maybe she was going to ask about, you know, fire safety tips at home or something like that. She said, well, I noticed you don't wear a wedding ring. Um, are you married? And it at this time I was, um, I was divorced. I was in between wives, you know, in the fire service, you know, most of us have like a starter marriage and then like our second marriage. Cause our divorce rate is incredibly high. That's partially our fault. Um, partially the fault of the job, but I mean, it is what it is. So, uh, and I didn't feel like the need to tell her I was divorced. I just like, I, cause that's really wasn't relevant. So I just said, no, I'm not married. You know, and she says, Oh, she said, well, um, do you think you might like to go out with me sometime? And I said, ma'am, uh, again, with all due respect, ma'am, you, you're married. And she looks at me and says, oh, it's okay. My husband won't mind. And at this point, I... I panicked, you know, there is no good way to, to disengage yourself from that situation. And this lady had me scared shitless. You know, here I am, this big Irish Catholic fireman, I'm six foot four, you know, 205 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal. Okay. I was exaggerating. I'm exaggerating about that last part, but you know, I mean, I, I go into burning buildings. I had a, a, a reputation on the job for fearlessness, which led, which borderline recklessness as my personnel file will, you know, safety violations will attest to. And here I am terrified by this little five foot four blonde head. The only thing I could think of to say, like, I couldn't, I didn't know what to do. Like, I, I didn't know what to do. 
the only thing I could think of to say was, uh, I, I got to go. I have diarrhea. And I took off running. I, I ran away, left my basket there full of shit, ran away, ran to the bathroom, hid in the bathroom stall for 30 minutes, hoping that she'd leave the grocery store by the time I came out. Well, when I came out of the bathroom, I'm like tiptoeing through the store, low crawling, you know, peeking around to make sure I didn't run into her between myself and my car or my truck outside. I, I left my basket. Like I never even went back and got the groceries and I never shopped at that store again. I found me a different grocery store. So I wouldn't run into this lady again. Like, I don't know what all she and her husband were into, but it was, uh, I mean, yeah, the, whatever, you know, you want to do play with handcuffs and Batman costumes. Hey, go for it. You know, that that's, that's, you know, whatever, you know, whatever floats your boat. But when you're married, don't be bringing me into your little games, you know? <laughs> so I, 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 it, it scared me. Like I, I just, I did not know what to do. Um, I'd never really come across that. I don't know if like if they had like an open marriage or I, I, I don't know, but I just preferred not to find out any more detail. I already knew an uncomfortable amount about their sex lives. I didn't want to know anymore. So that's, it kind of reinforces a lesson that I tell my students in class. I'm like, look, whatever you do in a privacy of your own home is nobody's business, but yours. But if you're not careful, it becomes the fire department's business. I'm just saying, you know, and I was definitely kind of the, the case here. Um, that's one of those calls that it's, I mean, I saw a lot of crazy stuff on the job. I mean, we all do. <clears throat> but that one really kind of stands out in my mind as probably the, the craziest thing I've ever seen. Um, so th these are these are just two stories um, among many, but these are the two that I felt like I could I could I could tell. Um, now, in case some of you are wondering after that first story and you're like, well, what does your wife think about you having a shrine to somebody that died, you know, 59 years and 11 months before you were born. Um, the truth of the matter is my wife really doesn't care. Uh, it doesn't bother her. Um, the primary reason for that is that, um, you know, had that incident not happened, um, I would have died in that fire and my wife would have never met me. So, I mean, she owes her a bit of thanks too. I guess, if you think in that regard. Um, and the other thing is, you know, with, I mean, I, I know I joke, especially on social media from time to time about um, me having a, a history crush on Maria or me being in love with Maria. It, it's really not like that. It's, it's, it's more of a, um, more of a profound admiration and respect. I mean, how do you not love your guardian angel? I mean, that's, you know, and especially since she and I have been through some shit since then, even since that, that first call. So it's really more of like a religious affection on my part. So it's, uh, cause again, she is a officially a saint. Um, so it's really more like that. And besides my wife has no business criticizing anybody, uh, for their taste, I guess you can say in historical figures. M my wife is in love with Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron. You know, my wife's German, so I guess she can't help it. But, and when I say she is in love with Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron, she sleeps with a pillow that has his face on it. She has like a custom-made pillow that has his picture uh, printed on, on the pillow. 
uh, if you go, she, she teaches uh, public school. So if you go into her classroom, she has like 10 different photographs of him on her desk. She has one of me. Uh, she has about 10 of him. She has like a little Red Baron action figure. She has uh, a, um, like a kite version of his airplane hanging from her classroom ceiling. Uh, she has a photo of him on the nightstand next to her bed. I will occasionally, if she's in the bedroom, I'll occasionally walk in there and find her just standing there gazing lovingly at the photograph. Uh, so yeah, she don't really have any room to, to criticize. And of course, if you don't know who Manfred von Richthofen was, he was the, uh, German, uh, pilot, the German, uh, Baron that, uh, was the highest scoring fighter pilot on either side during World War One. Um, he's also the one, if you watch the, you know, Snoopy, that's who Snoopy is always, always uh, fighting. You know, when he's acting like he's flying on top of his doghouse, that's the Red Baron that he's fighting against. And the funny thing about her being so obsessed with, and, and you know, lusting after the Red Baron, is that when I was a young firefighter, you know, nicknames are very common in the fire service. Uh, it's not unusual to have a nickname. And it could be a short form of your last name. It could be because of something embarrassing that you did. I mean, whatever, but you're probably going to get a nickname. Uh, it's like, if they're still calling you by your, your given first name, they probably don't like you, you know? So, um, in my case, um, when I was a young, cause remember I hired on when I was 19. I mean, I was a kid, you know? And, uh, so I, I, uh, my, my coworkers, didn't know the truth. And when they learned the truth or they figured it out, that's when they gave me the nickname. But I was always dating a different girl. Um, and it wasn't because I, I was like playing the field or anything. I could never get past a second date with a girl. Like we go out on two dates, no third date. And this was like all the time. Well, at first my coworkers, like they thought that I was like, you know, pimp Lee or something, because every time they turn around, I was dating a different girl. But again, it wasn't because that's what I was wanting to do. It's just, that's what I had to do, I guess. Um, because I could never get past date number two, that magic, you know, for the magic third date. Um, so they finally figured it out and they figured out that, well, they figured out that, you know, again, I, uh, relationships just weren't my thing. So, um, we we're sitting around the firehouse table one evening and one of the guys, uh, they were of course giving me shit. And w one of the guys looks at me and goes, you know what, Hutch I said, you're a, you kind of remind me of the red Baron cause you're always getting shot down. And so the nickname stuck. So that's what I was known by for years. Actually, um, that was my fire department nickname. But I figured, you know, if you got a nickname, you have to kind of own it. So later when I promoted to EO and drove an engine, I got me a leather, like an old fashioned leather pilot's hat with, you know, cap with goggles and a silk scarf. And I'd throw it on while I was driving the truck. I mean, just, you know, in good humor, you know, if they're going to give you a nickname, may as well own it. Uh, so it is kind of funny that I end up <clears throat> married to a German who wishes that she was married to the Red Baron, but, um, you know, I guess that's just the way life works out. So anyway, hopefully you've enjoyed these little stories and next time you should have the, uh, the next episode, you should have the, the, the firefighting and, and, uh, Germany during world war two episode.
So until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.